Hi, this is Alistair Stewart. This is Brock Wilbur. And you're listening to Caring to the Void, the podcast where we get together, tell each other about a weird or dark story we've heard, and then try and find the silver lining or flip it into something that, while maybe not positive, will at least be productive. Hi, Brock. How are you? Positive. Having a positive, fun, good time. Um, so uh, once a year, my magazine here in Kansas City, The Pitch, we put out a giant mega issue, sort of rounds out the year. It's our best of issue. It's got a bunch of voting on from the city, people picking all their favorite people in very, very specific categories. It's a lot of fun. People do a lot of voting, but there's also a lot of the magazine that's made up of us collectively at the pitch writing up all of the things from the year that we like collectively as a city or personally are like really proud of or enjoyed or thought were were awesome and like here at the show we do a dark positivity this show is created in a response to toxic positivity and false positivity like we do not do the promise that everything is going to be fine and that everything is going well uh, in an aspirational way in spite of reality. And, and I find that each year this sitting down to write all the things I'm proud of in my city becomes trickier in different ways, especially because working in local news, when I think about my year personally, I think about the number of like school board meetings I sat in on where somebody explained why we need to ban books so that the, tr the children don't turn trans or <laughs> weird protests or like the guy that we had to write about that was uh, a pepper seller at our local farmer's market who it turns out was a full-on unrepentant gas chamber Nazi guy. And, Jesus like, fuck. Interviewing him and being like, sorry you you've been doing this for years like certainly your your social media got hacked or something and he's like nope uh hail hitler and you're just like okay so like that be like my year is is really in in the muck but it, it also means that i see what's really out there versus what uh like the city's twitter account would have me think the city is and and sometimes it feels like i should be the way that truckers keep their like secret ledger that has their actual travel times and stuff. I feel like I should have my own worst of list that I keep in a, in a notes doc somewhere. And this year is the first time that I think the two have sort of found, uh, I, I, I think I'm actually a little proud of it is that so much of, of the writing in this best of is going with a, a very like, here's everything that I loved. And uh, also I mean, let's not ignore that this thing and this thing happened. It made the good parts around it really pop, but like, we 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 really you, you need the the loud parts to make the soft parts soft. Uh, I don't know. It's um it's fun to to once a year have your job ask you to like, hey, step back and think about your year. What are you proud of on behalf of everyone you live near? And it's uh, that's an increasingly difficult macro question i feel like for us as a society i think it's been a while since you could ask me what i'm most proud of to be an american and on a city level i there's just so much that i actually am proud of but it is just very funny to it's difficult for people to sit down and do new year's resolutions it's hard enough without being like and let's do like a full accounting of what your current year went like. Uh, normally you skip that step for good reason. And uh, 
I don't know. It's uh, it is perhaps beneficial and in line with what we do here to to be like. No, things deserve a pretty realistic accounting, and you can. I mean, the the for for realsies, the number of things on my like list that I'm like, and on a personal note, that thing didn't make me start drinking again. Uh, those are wins. Those are legit wins. Yep. <laughs> in the face of encroaching shadows, uh, and uh, I could be proud of those. So uh, I don't know. It's. It, the 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 in sum on it is that like everything's bad and when you take a step back and really give it some time and space everything is much much worse it's so much worse if you don't think about things never think about things but if you do uh i don't know sometimes it's kind of nice to just scrape together a big goddamn heaping bowl of silver lining and just look at that and go like yeah, all right. Pretty great year for silver lining. B- big fan on that. So that that's where I am. How are you today? <laughs> I'm doing okay. I I have, as is so often the case, I, I'm kind of plowing a loosely parallel furrow to that. In that, just as is in any given year, this this time of year is always a little kind of, and I'm doing this because uh, with <laughs> a lot of the day job. And this year, with the remarkable lack of day job for an extended period of time, <laughs> there's there's a, a very real element of that. And the thing which I've I've always found, and and now more sharply than ever, is I gain delicious salty catharsis from doing the thing that no one else has bothered with. And there's there's an element of kind of eating soup like a bitch to that. I freely admit. But a lot of the stuff which I've been doing recently, you know, some of the volunteer stuff I do, some of the stuff in full lid, has been very consciously skewed towards the slightly more obscure. And I'm a firm believer that, you know, obscurity is much like, well, this is something which, you know, as a fan, you shouldn't be expected to be paid for. Like, yeah, people die of exposure and people die of obscurity. And if only one person is going to drag a thing out into the light and go, look at this, it's good then that's going to be me. And the far end of that is toxic. The far end of that is, well, no one else is going to do this, so I guess I'm going to again. And you kind of... It's the old Guy Ritchie quote about, you know, he always got on very well with Gerard Butler because the men who enjoyed the taste of their own blood. And I I kind of lived inside that for a long time in my 30s. And I spent a lot of time very angry, at least partially as a result of that. And so that's always something which I could head towards if I wanted to, and I don't. What instead what the satisfaction I'm finding is basically my bowl of silver lining, if you will, is being able to look at stuff like the Shortbox Comic Fair, which is this month long indie comics store with a bunch of really good stuff on it and go, right now I'm in a position where I've got twenty pounds I can drop on this. I've never heard of any of these people. I'm gonna pick up twenty pounds worth of indie digital comics and I'm gonna read them. And a couple of them I won't like, and several of them I'll really like, and the ones I really like, I'll write about. And that will put more people's eyes on this thing, which otherwise would not have got the eyes that my review would bring to it. And (laughs) it's a little bit diet catharsis, it's a little bit catharsis light, but when things are a bit grim, I've been able to look at moments like that and go, yeah, I I did all right, it helped. And strangely, that helps. I like that. I like that. This is good. This one's good. This is not um, turning bugs into cheese. Uh, no, so no, no cheese bugs this, this time. I promise. 
No cheese bugs, no cheese bugs. Here we go, here we go. What do you got for us this week? Here in the spooky season, uh, where we should feel less apologetic for being a little spooky. I found the grandfathers of Jay and Silent Bob and the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and they are at least partially <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock's fault. Let me explain. The 1938 movie, The Lady Vanishes, is early Hitchcock, and it's, it's very much of its time. The first half hour is full of comedic Italian stereotypes who are perpetually 30 seconds away from Baba the Boopy style family guy vocalizations. Uh, and the entire thing is rammed full of terribly proper breads, talking rather too quickly and being charmingly unpleasant to one another, and calling it flirting, because in a lot of cases on this island, that is. Fuck you. Fuck you too. Marry me. Very well. It's a good time. I, like I say, it's a dated. It, it's a dated time, but it's a good time. And Margaret Lockwood and Michael, um, I think it's Michael Graves, are tremendous fun as the bickering central not quite couple. But they aren't the characters who made my brain itch. There are these two guys, Charters and Caldecott, played by Basil Radford and Norton Wayne. They are a pair of gentlemen who want very badly to find out how the cricket is going back home, and really aren't that bothered about anything else. They bounce off the increasingly feverish search for the missing nanny at the core of the movie, with the abject casual indifference of someone trapped on public transport with people who aren't them. When things get shooty in the third act, and they do, one of them offhandedly produces a gun and starts assisting. They are in no way the leads, but in every way they hold your attention. And what bothered me about them was they were familiar. So I dug in a little bit, and it turns out I've seen them before. Ealing Studios, responsible for a generation of epochal British comedies, produced exactly one horror film. Dead of Night is on Shudder at the moment, and it's well worth your time. It's a 1945 anthology featuring Mervyn Johns as the hapless Walter Craig, a man who has a recurring nightmare involving five strangers and a cottage. A cottage which, on awaking from his nightmare, he realises he has just been invited to. Each one of the five strangers has a story attached to them. They are... The exact type of mid-50s spooky you would think. They're variable in quality, but they're all fun. The payoff is lovely, and in the middle of all of this are Basil Radford and Norton Wayne, as two men almost, but not quite, exactly like Charters and Caldecott. In this movie, they're called Parrot and Potter, and they are two golf obsessives who fall for the exact same woman and play golf to decide who gets her. When one wins, <laughs> the other walks into the lake at the golf course and kills himself. He then proceeds, <laughs> seriously, he, it gets better, he then proceeds to haunt his colleague. They talk, and he decides to return to the afterlife, having accepted that, you know, his living friend has won. And the only problem is there's a very specific hand gesture and set of motions that you need to do to basically dial heaven. And he's forgotten. Until, and spoilers and misogyny abound, his living buddy accidentally perfects this gesture, sends himself to heaven, the dead guy reincarnates, and the female lead basically goes, well, seeing as you're here. And that's where it ends. I did say this movie was made in 1945, so allowances need to be made, but still, it's actually based on an H.G. Wells short story, too. And while it's the section that aged the least well, the two leads carry it based on sheer personality. So when I saw them in The Lady Vanishes, I went looking for where else they'd shown up. And it turns out basically everywhere. Charters and Caldecott appeared officially in three other movies, including a near-direct sequel to The Lady Vanishes, which for some reason we just don't talk about. The actors were also hired to play essentially the same duo in eight 
other films. Oh, and five radio shows and a play and got a 1980s spin-off TV series where they were the main characters and which, of course, didn't work very well because they're not main characters. They were the Vladimir and Estragon of their era. The Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of 1940s movies with occasional murder. The Jay and Silent Bob of black and white cinema. The grandfathers of the MCU, grumbling about the blonde chap with long hair and his dark-haired brother talking rather too loudly at the quiet coach. Now, looked at one way, you could argue they're a one-note gag. A pair of performers trapped doing the comedic equivalent of Freebird for their entire career. Looked at the other, they're gods. They're unbound by narrative conceit, unconcerned by copyright, striding boldly down the dining car of history, <laughs> hoping that perhaps at the end of it, there will be tea and the cricket results. Do, do you have a caring to go with this? I do. The secret to good comedy is timing. The second secret to good comedy is honesty. That also goes for creativity, for art, for life. You are uniquely equipped to do exactly one thing. Be you. That one thing, often because we were given anxiety around the same time we were given thumbs, will not feel like enough. It is. You are uniquely equipped to solve the problem of being you. Let the others run around in the background, because make no mistake, in your life, you are the star, not whoever is looking for the missing nanny. Let them fight ghosts, let them solve crimes. Help out when you need to, want to, and can. But never forget that just because their story is not your story, that does not mean you aren't your own protagonist. Drink your tea, read your paper, ride the rails, watch the cricket. Copyright cannot stop you. History cannot stop you. You cannot be harmed in any way that matters. Except, perhaps, for when rain stops play. I know that it has aged poorly, but I feel like I should tell you about how I met my wife and what happened to my best friend Thaddeus over a game of golf. Um, <laughs> yes. It's problematic, sure, but I, more often than not, us here in the States, it is uh, it involves a series of hand motions getting into heaven and, uh, and uh, having a, a low handicap uh, at par for the course is really... Uh, <laughs> I, I love that they're a perfect early example of like, well, I kind of enjoyed that. What if they had an extended universe and we just, what if we put that thing that I like in everything else, including early Hitchcock, like, right. I don't know, they'll make space for these characters. And I like that a hundred years later for you, it's like, this feels vaguely familiar, but certainly it can't be the same thing. Yes. Yes, it can. They could. Exactly. One executive was just like. The funny guy made me laugh. Put him in all the things. Put him in Godfather. <laughs> they were in an early draft of The Third Man. Oh, my God. Right? What? <laughs> uh, I just, I, I, I love this. And I, I love how, you know, every time, and we, we don't have time to, to sidebar into how I'm kind of mad at the MCU these days. But every time someone goes, oh, but, you know, the MCU is really, really damaging and toxic and no one's ever really done this before. Well, kind of, increasingly. And yeah, people have done this a lot before now. The MCU did something to the brains of people that suddenly were interested in entertainment and the industry side of things where they get to say, no one's ever tried this thing before. And you're like, it's the equivalent of anyone bringing up Potter and and the reaction being like, I need everyone to read a second book. Like it's, it, we're, we're coming off the announcement that Marvel had to nuke its television shows because they're going to start 
putting showrunners on there. And there's something that's so joyous in anyone that's ever been through film school watching that thing that happens between freshman and sophomore year when somebody's like, I'm going to build my entire thing on doing stuff the opposite of the way that it's traditionally done and then realizing, okay, so there's a reason that these things are done that way because right. otherwise it doesn't fucking work. Uh, and uh, and then be, but like only Marvel can be celebrated for the idea of like, what if we actually like wrote this down ahead of time? Like, oh, you've never seen anybody do this before. It's like, no, man, come on. That's, what, what are we doing? Just one of those nuclear level tweets. Um, one of the senior WGA folks retweeted the Marvel will have showrunners now with I'm so fucking tired. <laughs> I mean, I think that my favorite one from those was uh, somebody that was actively working in the new Daredevil like writer's room who was like, they let us go today. The experiment is done. Thank God. Like to, for even the writers to be like, we are glad to be free of whatever form this took. I was like, okay, so everyone, no one, there's no one here to, to mourn any sort of loss. Uh, they'll, they'll find another way to get Mr. Murdoch back onto the screen. It's fine. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm really happy that the agents of shield team have finally got their flowers. You know, the amount, the, the amount of folks who wrote for agents of shield, I have a little bit of back channel stuff there, right? like three or four sources back. I've got solid information about all the times they were very nearly directly connected to the MCU and got fucked at the last minute. But the the, the amount of, of former writers and, and producers on that who've just been like, oh, if you have a writer's room and a showrunner, it goes better. Oh, wow. Maybe that's why we got seven seasons. It is, <laughs> it's just adorable, you know? It truly is. So today uh, I'm talking about teeth, 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 I th teeth, teeth, teeth. Everybody chants for it. We all love them. Everybody eats them. Everybody eat those teeth. Cows are um, yummy. So for not the first time on this show, uh, I've come prepared to talk about growing teeth. This is a segment that maybe has almost happened four times because uh, people in labs have been like, hey, we figured out how to grow teeth. And I've been like, oh, I want to see the fields of teeth. I want to want to traipse traipse through the teeth fields, have a real unpleasant time. Today was finally the one that's the breakthrough that I, I I think is worth really chatting about because it's not using stem cells to grow a bunch of lab teeth or or, or three D printers or something. It is an actual clinical trial moving forward uh, that's that's shown a, a great deal of promise. It's out of Japan, and it, this is going to start happening uh, in July of 2024. Uh, basically, what they figured out is that there's a reason that you only get baby teeth and adult teeth. You get the practice round, and you get the real run, and then no more teeth. That, uh, the, the reason ties in basically to a, a very specific gene called USAG1. They found it in mice, and they figured this out while looking for something else. They were like, why do some teeth come in badly? They were kind of looking at, like, gum disease in general, and they found this gene. And what it turns out the gene does is its main function is to be like, hey, no more teeth. Like, that's the whole thing. It's, that's why sometimes it, it kicks in a little early in some people, and the teeth come in. Not so great, uh, but overall, its its purpose is to just be like, you got the one set of teeth. And so they realize that if they can suppress this gene, in kids, it'll mean that, you know, 
adult teeth definitely come in good. But what they've realized is that in if you can like fully suppress it, if you lose an adult tooth, your body can and will make more teeth. Which I love beyond just the fact that this is obviously a podcast for people that love darkness and teeth. It is the emoji in our Twitter bios. <clears throat> Uh, yeah, there's nothing, nothing we love in this world more than things having more teeth. But I, I, I think that the part of it that hits me the most is that I just really appreciate that, like, it's one of those hard and fast rules about your own existence that you're taught and no one has ever questioned. It's just sort of like you get the teeth you get. And then when they're gone, like no more second chances. And I think that there's something so beautiful about opening that up to like, I don't know. You could maybe do more. Uh, it feels it beers like on the precipice of like starfish level. Like, I don't know, man, you could have more arms if something were to go real wrong. Uh, and just being like, oh, OK, that opens up a lot of doors for me, actually. Uh, right? and makes me a little less precious about things. So um, I'm I'm just sort of. Uh, pretty stoked on the whole idea there and uh, uh, the idea that. Um, you know, it, it, if something goes wrong with your adult teeth, you're dedicated to this life of hundreds of thousands of dollars of weird replacement devices. And it's it, we have such a history as humans of having to deal with that. And it's been such a problem. And it's like, uh, what if what if you just told your body, hey, those teeth keep it coming? Was a big fan. Uh, let's do more of that. And so uh, my carrying on this one is um, the disappointing part is how bad they are at counting. When they let you know the rules from the outset, they talk in definites, permanence, knowns, and laws. But they can't count the next. So for all things that you were told that get one shot, there's always the potential that this is not a one-and-done kind of thing. Life is big, time is everywhere, nothing is sure, and making plans around this can count out the uncountable. In a world where they told you that there weren't more teeth on the way, there might be more teeth on the way. And don't be afraid to let that serve as a reminder that the fix is never in because you don't know what will fix itself next. <laughs> that is fucking beautiful. Thank you. More teeth. More teeth. More teeth. What if? I, I'm finding so much inspiration in like what, you know what? Everything else that we're told you get one of these is like, I don't know. Tell me about my next body. Tell me about soul two. I'm big in on soul three. I think that's the soul that I get it right on. Let's, right. Let's keep the strain going. You know, as someone who is a 47-year champion fat kid who who had the whole, oh, you you have to look after the your teeth because they're the only ones you get. Oh, you've lost a couple. Okay, well, I guess that's because you eat like crap. I'm like, firstly, I don't. Secondly, I have bad teeth. It's in the family genetics. Also, British. It's one of the few stereotypes that does actually work. And thirdly, fuck you, because soon I might be able to flick a switch, which would mean I'd grow some more. So how do you like me now? Brilliant. Thank you. This is the first one that I've ever been like, this is specifically for the British audience. Like, uh, <laughs> your fluoride water thing, we can correct for that now. It's it's over. <laughs> Little generations of bad teeth, don't worry. It's time for science. <laughs> do you have a self-care into the word this week? I do. It's a pleasingly short one as well. Uh, it's just, I'm playing Starfield, which is one of those get, kind of Junji Ito games for me. This is my whole, it was made for me. Uh, I, I play a couple of hours a night. I'm currently a cop, a coast guard, an explorer, a corporate assassin, a trucker, and a gang member. I'm having big fun. How about you? Um, well, also corporate assassin. Uh, yeah, uh, 
I think I did my time in Starfield. I got, uh, I saw all the stories I needed to see. I, um, a hard recommend. That's that's a great use of a giant chunk of time. Uh, big fun. Uh, my self-care is that I'm just doing a winter prep this year. Um, I found a window that we don't open. And I was like, that's going to be my winter window. Sunlight's going to come in through there. I'm going to get that. I've started like making piles of books for which weeks I'm going to get to them. Just really trying to get ahead of the winter depression this time around where I'm like, you know what? I, I can beat it. That's amazing. And honestly, I'm probably going to do something similar because that feels like it's going to work. Yeah. All right. In which case, uh, I think the only things we have left to say are to plead with you to please, if you like the show, uh, and if you're still listening after the, the maggot cheese and spider milk episode, you clearly do. So thank you for that. Um, please leave a review on your podcatcher of choice. Uh, and also, if you feel like documenting the ongoing collapse of Western civilization, or indeed whichever civilization you choose to inhabit, we can heartily recommend the merchandise produced by our dear friend Jordan Shively, who uh, at Void Merch has a wide variety of t-shirts, stickers, and notebooks, all of which, as Brock has pointed out, will assist you in creating some tertiary narrative lore for the post-apocalyptic role-playing game of the future. So, pop along, take a look. Also worth pointing out that the spiders that make the milk are also jumping spiders. Forgot to mention that last time because you're jumping maggots. Uh, felt too close, but yeah. More details still coming on that thing that no one enjoyed. There, there it is. I feel like I've got my in with Marvel, Brock. All, it, all it, it's going to take <laughs> is that pitch meeting. It's just going to be jumping spiders that fire milk. Spider milk. Spider, spider milk. milk. Yeah, we, yeah, we got it in one, fella. <laughs> Fuck yes. Thank you so much for joining us, folks. Brock, where can people find you on the socials? At Brock, uh, I have a book out called uh, Our Special Place Conversations on Silent Hill. Buy it. It's for charity. Or don't. It's perfectly fine. I love you. Thank you. <laughs> Fantastic. Please do. It's a spectacularly good book about a spectacularly good series of video games. You can find me on the Twitters at Alistair Stewart and my weekly pop culture newsletter, The Full Lid, which you can find full details of at www. Because people still say that sometimes. AlistairStewart.com <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, folks. This is, And thank you, Brock. This has, as ever, been a blast. We will see you next time. And remember, keep your hearts dark and true and your teeth sharp and many. And we will see you next time in the void. www.buy www.buy.com <laughs> <laughs>